Okay, well, there are a variety of housekeeping issues I could engage at the start of this episode. ISIS just released a fairly amazing document entitled Why We Hate You and Why We Fight You. Mr. Spazar, it's, it's as though they've been watching my skirmishes with obscurantists who deny the religious roots of jihadism, and they just thought, enough is enough. We're, we're just going to close every loophole that people like Scott Atran and Karen Armstrong and Robert Pape and Noam Chomsky and all these other confabulators on this issue seem to find in their desperate attempts to implicate everything other than our heartfelt religious beliefs. That's what they did. They just spelled out with utter clarity their motivations for doing what they do. But I might just do a, a separate podcast there because I'd rather not delay the conversation I'm going to bring you today, which strikes me as especially urgent. So I'm just going to pivot directly to today's guest. As always, if you like what I'm doing on the podcast, you can support this work at samharris.org forward slash support. And your support is, in fact, what makes conversations like this possible. This podcast is ad-free, and I'm happy to keep it that way. But that makes you my only sponsor, and your support is much appreciated. Today I'll be speaking with Glenn Lowry. Glenn is the Merton P. Stoltz Professor of Social Sciences and Professor of Economics at Brown University. He's taught previously at Boston and Harvard and Northwestern and the University of Michigan. He holds a BA in mathematics from Northwestern and a PhD in economics from MIT. He's a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, a former Guggenheim Fellowship recipient. He has published widely and has written several books that I will link to on my blog. I discovered Glenn through his Blogging Heads TV podcast, where he's been having some extraordinarily candid and clarifying conversations about race and racism with the linguist John McWhorter from Columbia. And I highly recommend you check out Glenn's podcast on Blogging Heads TV. And again, I'll, I'll provide a link to that on my website. And the purpose of my conversation with him today was to dive headlong into these controversial waters of race and racism and violence in America, as though my work weren't controversial enough already. But I've been wanting to do this for a while because these issues are just so consequential and politically divisive. But I've been worried about doing this for obvious reasons. I raised the topic in my podcast with Neil deGrasse Tyson, if you recall, but he didn't want to touch it, which I understand. He didn't feel the time was right to weigh in on these issues personally. Uh, but for some reason, I've been feeling like the time is right for me. It's just really been bothering me that so much of what I hear about race and violence in America doesn't make any sense. And the fact that I've been worried about speaking about these issues in public was also bothering me. In fact, the implications of speaking about race in particular caused me to cancel a book contract I had last year. It just seemed like too much of a liability. But I have since stiffened my spine, and I was left wondering who I could talk to about these things. My goal has been to find an African-American intellectual who could really get into the details with me, but who I could also trust to have a truly rational conversation that wouldn't be contaminated by identity politics. As you probably intuit, I think identity politics are just poison, unless your identity at this point is homo sapiens. 
But I, I certainly found what I was looking for in Glenn. He is just so good on these topics. And as you'll hear, he spends a fair amount of time giving the counterpoint to his positions on each topic, steelmanning rather than strawmanning the views of his opponents. Anyway, I found this conversation extremely helpful. I felt like Glenn and I could have gone on for much longer, and many thanks to Glenn for being so generous with his time. If you find this conversation as useful as I did, I encourage you to spread it around and follow Glenn on Twitter at Glenn Lowry, G-L-E-N-N-L-O-U-R-Y. And please tell him that you appreciate what he's doing. And again, check out his podcast on bloggingheads.tv. And now I give you Glenn Lowry. Well, I'm here with Glenn Lowry. Glenn, thanks for coming on the podcast. Sam, my pleasure. Well, listen, I've really been excited about having this conversation. I think probably irrationally so, because the, the topics we're going to cover, race and racism and police violence, really can't help but bring us some measure of grief. So thank you for doing this. And I think most of the grief will come my way probably. But I first, I want to say that your podcast that you do on Blogging Heads TV, especially the ones I've seen that you've done with John McWhorter, whom I'm, I also greatly admire, I've got to say that, that those have just been fantastic. And, and you guys are, are just, I mean, it's so rare to hear two people talk about these topics, honestly. So I just want to you know, point people in in the direction of those podcasts. And great, Sam. Can I can I tell your audience that uh, that's the Glenn Show at BloggingHeads.tv that you're referring to, and um, all viewers or listeners are welcome. Yeah, yeah, and I'll, I'll put a link to your page where, where I embed this on my blog, so people can find that link. Just to kind of start us off, what what I'm noticing now, and it's really as though for the first time, it's really been in the last year or so is that there's a culture of censorship and identity politics and a kind of addiction to being outraged and, and, a, and a resort to outrage in the place of reasoned argument, especially among young people, that is just making it impossible to have productive conversations on important topics. And this is happening on topics other than race, of course. It's, you know, it happens on religion and terrorism and gender, but race is obviously one of those hotspots. And from what I've seen, you've been illuminating this topic on your show in a way that's really unusual and just cutting through confusion like a laser. So it's, it really is great to be talking to you. Well, that's good to hear. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, I, I think one of my motivations, and John McWhorter can speak for himself, but I think this would apply to him too, is that in the face of this situation that you just got through describing of addiction to outrage, that's, that's a, an artful way of putting it, um, of a kind of, uh, I don't know, moral certitude and uh, intolerance of argument that doesn't check the right boxes and all of that. In the face of that, because I care so much about these questions of race and equality and justice, I've, I've felt really compelled in the, in the face of a lot of uh, pushback and, and, and vitriol and, 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 and you know, uh, contempt expressed toward me for doing so. I've just kind of felt compelled to keep, you know, well, keep uh, challenging, keep raising questions, keep asking questions, you know. Um, and uh, so I don't know, I'm not, uh, I don't think I'm doing any kind of uh, heroic, uh, you know, celebration for doing it. It just seems like the right thing to do. But 
but that's uh, that's a big part of my motivation. Yeah. yeah. Well, so before we dive into this topic, perhaps you can just say a few words about your background and just your, your kind of areas of focus intellectually. What? How do you describe what you do in general? Okay, so I'm a professor of economics here at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, I've been here for 10 years. I've taught economics at a number of other universities, uh, Harvard in the 1980s, uh, Boston University in the 1990s. Um, I'm a quantitative social scientist. I was trained at MIT in the 70s, uh, took a PhD in economics there, and for much of my early career, focused on uh, mathematical modeling of various economic processes uh, in the labor market and uh, industrial organization, firms, competition, research and development, natural resource economics, economics of uh, invention and exploration, things of this kind, game theory, Mm. uh, information economics, this kind of thing. I uh, became a professor at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard and got very much interested in public policy after taking up that post and began writing um, essays and reviews and commentaries on issues of race in the United States particularly and uh, was a um, Reagan conservative during the 1980s, quite Mm -hmm. rare for an African-American Uh, Moved away from that political identity toward the center of the spectrum a bit uh, and uh, think of myself now as a a kind of centrist or maybe mildly right of center Democrat, though um, that's not an identity that I cling to with any particular, you know, intensity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, and you obviously your background both in mathematics and statistics and and social science makes you really perfectly well-placed to have the kind of conversation we're going to have. I've been wanting to talk about race and racism for a while because it's it's a topic of just such huge consequence. And it's a topic that, again, attracts a fair amount of logical and moral confusion, which renders people unable to, to reason with, with each other. And this is just, this is not a problem just across racial lines. And it's not just a problem in public. I mean, frankly, I have white friends who I find I can't have this conversation with because they've become so emotionally hijacked. And they don't realize, from my point of view, they don't realize that almost everything that is coming out of their mouths doesn't make moral or logical or historical or psychological sense. And this really worries me because I, I view the maintenance of civilization and, and our moral progress as a species really as, as a, a sequence of successful conversations. I've said this many times before on my podcast and and in writing. It seems to me that we we live in perpetual choice between conversation and violence, just as a species. So when I see conversations reliably fail like this, I start to get worried. And so I've been wanting to talk about race, and I just this is just the context of how I set up this conversation. I noticed the conversations you have been having with John McWhorter, and I realized that I had met John at a TED conference. So I got in touch with him, and then he suggested I speak with you. And so, so you are my Virgil, uh, who's going to guide me through this wilderness of error. And again, thank you for agreeing to do this. Hope I'm up to the task here. Uh, it's a tall order, actually. And I guess a final preliminary point: I, I feel the need to offer a disclaimer up front because I think you and I are, are going to agree about many things, and and I'm a little worried about this because because my staking out some of these positions 
as a white guy is going to rub many of our listeners the wrong way. And I, and I, I really don't want to be in a defensive crouch as we have this conversation. So I think I should just acknowledge up front a, a couple of things that, that should be obvious, and it should be obvious that I would acknowledge them. And the first is just that the history of racism in the U.S. has, has obviously been horrific, right? It seems to me no sane person could doubt that. And there's no doubt that racism remains a problem in our society, and, and just how big a problem is something that I want us to discuss. But I, you know, I can check my privilege at the outset here. I, I have no doubt that I have reaped many advantages from being white, and I have no idea what it's like to grow up as a black man in our society. So, so I, I get that I don't get it. And if there's any way in which my not getting it seems relevant to the issues we're about to touch, I certainly hope you'll point that out to me. But as we drive toward points that many of our listeners will find fairly incendiary, especially coming from a white guy, I, I, I just I just have to make it clear that it, it is obvious how horrible white racism and its consequences have been in the past. And I am fully prepared to believe that the, the shadow of slavery and Jim Crow still hangs over our society to a degree that I don't understand in any way, certainly not from my first person experience. But my goal in this conversation is to get an accurate picture of race and racism and police violence as it occurs now so that we can think about how to move forward. So I just wanted to, to erect that bulwark, however ineffectual it will prove to be, because I just have no doubt that we're about to say some things that will lend itself to selective quotation. And I've now learned through you know rather cruel experience that some people listen to this podcast just for the pleasure of quoting me out of context in misleading ways. So you know, but that's with this caveat, which may do me no good whatsoever. I just want to I want to throw that up before we dive into into the details. Well, I was just going to comment that um, I think you know, your caveat is well taken as far as it goes, uh, and that speaks well of you, I would say. But it's such a pity that it's necessary for you to make that kind of elaborate, uh, uh, you know, uh, preemptive uh, move here, uh, that um, it bespeaks how um, uh, closed uh, and uh, tortured is the environment in which we're having the conversation. Uh, I mean, I'm black, all right? Uh, I am, <laughs> if anybody is, I mean, grew up on the south side of Chicago in the 1950s and the 1960s from a working class background, uh, have had many a run-in with American racism, uh, you know, all across the board. Uh, and... Uh, descend from people who had been slaves in the United States. On the other hand, uh, we sit here in the year 2016. Uh, 1863 is a century and a half in the past. Um, Jim Crow segregation is a distant memory. Uh, Barack Hussein Obama is about to step down, having served two terms, winning comfortable national elections to the highest office in the land. The commissioners of the police in many of the cities in which police, black community relations are most troubled are themselves African-American, as often are the administrative officers running the governments of those cities. Um, we are 50 years past the advent of the onset of affirmative action. Um, this is not 1910, 1950, or 1985. This is the year 2016. And uh, the idea that white privilege is such a stain 
on the country that um, an otherwise rational and intelligent person who happens to be white needs to give an elaborate preamble before they make a conversation about race relations in this country, that the benefit of the doubt or the, the, the willingness to hear something that one doesn't agree with without imputing invidious motives to the person who's expressed that view is so rampant that um, a person like yourself needs to, in effect, apologize in advance for having an opinion. Come on, that's, that's awful. That's poisonous. That, that's good. Uh, so that's just Glenn Lowry spotting off, and I don't know how that will leave me uh, in the minds of some of your viewers uh, who might want to take what I've said out of context as well, but that's where I'm coming from here. Needless to say, I agree with you, but unfortunately, I think it still is necessary because, again, even my conversations in private suggest to me that this is just this topic is so radioactive that it's it's just very difficult for people to even hear what is being said, much less trace the implications. So I, I want to start start with just a very simple question, a deceptively simple question, and just ask you, what is racism? <laughs> All right. Um, this is not necessarily a scientifically precise response. This is just a more off-the-cuff response. Um, I would say it is a, a contempt for or devaluation of the uh, humanity of another in virtue of their uh, presumed racial identity. Uh, racism is the... Uh, suspension of rational faculty, and it's a, um, a uh, disregard for a derogation of uh, perception of the unfitness of, uh, for intimate relations, a presumption about the intelligence, a imputation of uh, bad character, uh, uh, this kind of thing, vis-a-vis uh, another person or a group of people in virtue of what one understands to be their racial identity. Okay, so so given that definition, uh, which, which I agree with, who is the evil genius who first convinced the world that being able to honestly say that, quote, some of my best friends are black is not an adequate defense against the charge of racism toward black people? If the path forward toward some colorblind utopia doesn't entail having best friends or even a spouse who is from a different race, if that doesn't represent an adequate surmounting of the problem of, of racism, and, I'm, and now I'm speaking personally, we can leave aside institutional or structural racism for the moment, but if having one's closest, most intimate friends be of another race isn't an adequate defense of what you just described as racism, or a defense against what you just described as racism. Explain that to me. Well, it's funny that you use this phrase, some of my best friends are, because I once wrote an article, it's been over 20 years now, about uh, self-censorship in public discourse, a theory of political correctness. It was published in the journal Rationality and Society in 1994. And in it, I develop an account of political correctness, which I could go into in greater detail should you be interested, but I, I can say this much about political correctness. And on my account, a regime of political correctness is a moral signaling equilibrium in which people who don't want to be thought of as being on the wrong side of history will suppress an honest expression of what they believe about some controversial issue because people who are known to be on the wrong side of history are prominently saying the same things. Mm. 
Okay, so for example, if back during the day when um, the fight for um, uh, independence of blacks in South Africa was going on, a person thought that boycotting uh, South African businesses was not a good policy, but that constructive engagement with those businesses was a better policy for trying to help the blacks in South Africa. If a person thought that, they might not be willing to say so in public because there were other people who were criticizing sanctions who were basically supporting the apartheid government. The apartheid government itself was putting out the line that sanctions were not as uh, helpful as constructive engagement with the South African society. So a person might not want to say that because they don't want to be thought to be on the wrong side of history. So with that understanding of what political correctness might be thought to be, um, I was making the observation that once a regime of that kind comes into existence, it's very robust and, and difficult to dispel. And in particular, uh, declarations of, uh, you know, I'm not really racist, some of my best friends are black, um, are uh, the sincerity of such declarations are, are, are called into question because who's going to say such a thing except for somebody who has the closeted view that uh, is being sanctioned by uh, common opinion, which they want to avoid being sanctioned for by making a declaration. Talk is cheap. Anybody can say it. Uh, so there was a time in American history, I think, in American cultural and social history, maybe the 1940s, 50s, maybe even into the 60s, where a person could say sincerely and be taken at face value, some of my best friends are uh, gay, but I'm, uh, you know, I'm against gay marriage. Some of my best friends are black, but I think that affirmative action is uh, really a very poor policy. And that would have some kind of weight. But um, once the, the um, uh, convention of value signaling in which correct positions on the sensitive issue, uh, in the case at hand, affirmative action or a homosexual marriage, correct positions is a way of signaling moral virtue, um, the, the, the cover that one might have otherwise gotten from uh, making this declaration, let's say it's a verifiable declaration, some of my best friends are, uh, no longer covers enough. Mm. What does Shakespeare say somewhere? Uh, me thinks he doth protest too much. You know, mm -hmm. the guy who's saying some of my best friends are protesteth too much. Uh, that guy is seeking an exemption from the moral judgment of others for having what he knows the others know to be unacceptable positions. And he's declaring some kind of fig leaf here. Uh, but we see it for what it is, a fig leaf, and we don't and we don't take it seriously, something like that. And in your definition of racism, I think we have to distinguish between the mere harboring of certain biases and a commitment to enshrining those biases or, or a sense that those biases are good or something that shouldn't be corrected for. And so, I mean, so racism can't merely be a matter of harboring certain biases because it, it can't be that you you fail to be perfectly neutral on an implicit association test. Because if, if that's the standard, almost no one will escape hanging. I mean, even many black people will be convicted of racism against blacks. And I, I think that uh, Mazarin Banaji, the, uh, uh, the psychologist at Harvard, who was one of the uh, founders of the implicit bias uh, literature, would agree with that. I don't think she would claim an equivalency between implicit bias uh, as measured by uh, one of her tests and racism or 
uh, in the case of gender uh, differences, implicit bias uh, about women's roles in society, which can be detected in almost every population of, uh, of uh, people who take these tests, and misogyny. I think she would want to draw a distinction between those two, and I think your observation that in the case of race, many African Americans will also score, uh, you know, positive in terms of the uh, detection of implicit bias about race in American society on these tests. That doesn't make them racist. It just means that their cognitive processes implicitly incorporate certain presumptions or stereotypes about uh, racial roles or racial uh, behaviors that are uh, a part of our culture and that are shared across the racial lines. So I agree with what you just said. I should briefly describe this test just so that people know what we're talking about. So Mazarin is one of the, the founders of this test, and she's used it probably for 20 years. And what it is, is it's, it's the purpose of the test is to expose beliefs and biases that people hold that they're either unaware of so that they, they can't report or that they know to be socially undesirable and so that they won't report. It's just been shown that, that uh, for instance, many white people will, will be faster at associating negative concepts with black faces than positive ones and, and will show the opposite bias for white faces. And this is interpreted as meaning that they harbor a preference for white people over black people. And it's easy to see why people would think this and view this as either a source or a consequence of racism. And as you pointed out, you can do this kind of test with other things. You can do it with cats and dogs or flowers and insects. You can do it with anything, really. But let's just stipulate that most people will show an in-group bias on the IAT. And we can even go further and, and accept that this underlying psychology has something to do with racism. Well, let's say it's, it's either the cause or the consequence or both. But I mean, racism as a, a social problem to be condemned and eradicated has to be something else. I mean, it, it's showing white bias on the IAT doesn't make you a racist. Racism is the endorsement of norms that support that bias. So it's, it's a person's understanding that he's biased and his further claim that he's happy to be that way because he believes that society shouldn't correct for such biases because they're good, because white people really are better than black people. He's someone who wants society to be unfair based on the color of a person's skin because he thinks skin color is a good way to determine the, the moral worth of human beings. That is something quite distinct from just merely harboring these biases, however they got there. And there's no question that such people exist but they have to be a tiny minority in our society at this point. And the rest of us, people of goodwill and you know, moral enlightenment, who may or may not be biased to one or another degree, clearly now support laws and policies that seek to cancel that kind of racism. And as you say, I mean, we, we, we've elected a, 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 our first black president who's, who's finishing his second term. This isn't mere tokenism. The people who voted for Obama with, with enthusiasm, whatever would an IAT would have shown about them, these are people who have canceled their personal racism in the form in which any real racist worthy of the name would practice it. Yeah, I think that's true, although I, I know that uh, many people, if they were to hear this conversation, would be objecting that, you know, you've just kind of, you know, more or less cleverly defined racism out of the picture, because there won't be very many at all racists left if we were to, um, if we were to have such a strict definition. 
Um, so I, I'm challenging myself right now to try to think where I think might be the problem. And I, while I don't have a, an entirely coherent development, uh, here, let me just make an observation. Um, mm -hmm. Suppose someone observes that, um, you know, the homicide rate is very high um, in certain quarters of our society that can be distinguished by race. You know, so many people in Chicago have been killed in the last years. A disproportionate number of both the victims and apparent perpetrators are black. Um, the um, uh, homicide rate in, in terms of whites perpetrating the crime is much lower. Um, and therefore, there seems to be something going on uh, in terms of uh, uh, black proclivity uh, to resort to violence and settling disputes or something like that. Suppose someone says that. Suppose someone says, no wonder the police are so afraid when they encounter African-Americans on the street. Have you taken a look at the crime statistics? Somebody says something like that. Somebody says, yes, it may be that blacks are more likely to be shot by the police in terms of the rate of police killings per number in the population than are whites. But after all, blacks are also overrepresented amongst violent criminals. And so who can be surprised that they are also overrepresented amongst the people who are shot by police officers. Someone says something like that. Mm -hmm. So now in all of these cases, these are statements that are in some way or another could be consistent with a person who uh, might have certain kinds of implicit biases or whatever, but who wouldn't endorse the norm that, um, you know, those biases are justifiable in some sense or are not a problem or, um, are in no way indicative of any kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, malady that needs to be addressed, that they, they, they would still nevertheless be thought to be racist. I mean, someone who says the Asians are all over the sciences and the engineering departments in our best universities, and the blacks are as scarce as in teeth there, simply makes an observation about the facts. That would be mm. thought by many people to be an act of racism, and yet it couldn't be so classified given the definition that you've just been developing. But hence my definition, because I, I would argue, I, while it's possible for racists, real racists, to make precisely those observations, those observations themselves being, to my ear, quite factual, I'm going to make observations of the sort you made with respect to crime in a minute, if that is the signature of racism, well, merely reporting statistics, then we can't even talk about the problem. Well, yeah. Again, I can imagine what a pushback might be. A pushback might be something like, look, your talking and my talking about this problem is not something that's going on in the abstract, on the moon, unconnected to anything else. It's embedded within a structure, the legitimacy of which is up for debate. A casual conversation of that sort, merely a recitation of facts, you call it, merely a recitation of facts, without um, laboring to place those facts within a context and discipline our enunciation of those facts with a uh, sort of deeper understanding of what history and contemporary social structure have wrought in terms of racial hierarchy, in terms of white supremacy, in terms of the comfort that you have in enunciating those facts, in terms of the political consequences of so many people enunciating those facts, not taking that on board, abets, reproduces, 
reifies, legitimates, uh, etches in more firmly hierarchical uh, uh, structures of racial domination. And so the word racist uh, is, or racism, is entirely appropriate. No, maybe it doesn't in these cases that I'm describing uh, identify a, uh, you know, uh, a kind of classical antipathy uh, on the basis of race. But uh, we're no longer living in 1955, and yet, you know, the disparities and um, inequalities by race of wealth, power, privilege and comfort in the society, opportunity, uh, are very, very great. So it's uh, laissez-faire racism is what Larry Bobo, the sociologist at Harvard, calls it. He says, you know, you do opinion surveys of populations. If you ask people things like, um, would you be willing to see your daughter or son married to someone of the opposite race, of a black person, if the, if the subject being asked is white, and they say yes to that at high rates? Uh, if you ask them, do they think blacks are inferior, and they say no to that at high rates, that would be the old classical racism where they have answered differently. Still, but still, mm-hmm. um, if you say, are white people disadvantaged by affirmative action? And they say, oh, yeah, because my kid didn't get into Harvard and some black kid with a lower score got in. Well, some white kid with a lower score also got in, but you focused on the black kid getting in. You see, you think you're not a racist because you're willing to see your son or daughter married to someone who's black. You're willing to stay in the same neighborhood if a black neighbor moves next door. But as a matter of fact, you interpret your son's rejection at Harvard as an, a consequence of racial affirmative action, where Harvard only accepts one in 15 applicants. And a lot of people got in ahead of your son who were not black and who had lower scores. So, so the, I, maybe I'm, I'm trying to make more elastic than makes sense this definition of racism. But I think some of the proponents of a more capacious definition of racism would say, in the 1950s, your definition was fine. In the year 2016, uh, we need to have a more subtle uh, and expansive understanding of how this uh, American you know, disease uh, is currently functioning. So let's make it as capacious as possible. I want you to now define what is often called structural or institutional racism. And it seems to me that people talk about this in a way that you were yeah. just doing even in such a way that, that people can participate in a, a structure that is de facto racist and, and perpetuating unfair treatment of people based on race, and yet the, the people operating in the structure may not, in fact, be at all racist. I mean, let's, let's say everyone passes Mazarin's test. Nobody's harboring any bias, and yet structures and institutions could still be deeply unfair. And, and if you could just yeah, talk about I that. Yeah, I want to say bit. at the outset, I am not personally, Glenn Lowry, a big fan uh, of the uh, current fad to um, invoke structure, quote, structural racism, close quote, as um, a meaningful category of social analysis. Um, I often don't know quite what people are talking about beyond observing that blacks come out on the short end of the stick by many um, measures of social um, achievement or status, and therefore structural racism. I mean, let me give incarceration as a case in point. Uh, So blacks are Mm. um, 12% or so of the American population and 40% or so of the people who are held behind bars. Now, Mm. uh, 
that's a complicated, big uh, social phenomenon, and uh, you could do uh, a very elaborate, you know, kind of social scientific investigation of what all the sources of that disparity are. But uh, simply put, the weight of the state, the, the violence of the state, where the police come and they drag you away in handcuffs and they lock you up in a cage, um, where you're guarded, you're surveilled, you're, um, you know, you're pursued by agents of the state, you're, you're stigmatized, you're civically excommunicated, you're um, held in contempt, you're, you're treated badly. And such a large um, disparity in the incidence of that kind of treatment by race exists in the society. That is sort of ipso facto uh, an indication of structural racism. The state stands up police forces, they build these cages, they corral people in them, and look at the impact that this is having on the black community. Uh, in some cities, the proportion of young men who are incarcerated or have a criminal record who are black is a third, 40%. It becomes a normal way of life. Um, you know, uh, young women go to the prison to try to find mates and pen pals and such like that. Kids see the role models of ex-cons mm -hmm. with their tattoos and their buffed up bodies who are coming in and out of the prison. Um, it becomes normative in these communities. Um, we have uh, a school to prison pipeline because discipline of uh, youngsters in schools seems to be somehow connected to their subsequent development into criminals. We have a prison industrial complex because indeed there is money to be made in the uh, provision of the services that are associated with incarceration and it's being made by private corporations and so on. Um, so this is structural racism. This is what I think many people would say. This is a prime example of structural racism. The structures of law enforcement come down uh, like a ton of bricks on people who are situated in the society at the margins uh, because of our history of race. And by the way, if the same forces had been coming down with the same degree of severity on white people, the structure would be able to reform itself. Questions would arise. Three strikes and you're out would look very differently if most of the people suffering under that kind of punitive regime were white. But because they're black and brown, uh, we can write them off. We don't question ourselves. The, um, you know, uh, business as usual seems acceptable when uh, the people who are bearing the cost of it are black. So, so um, I'm not sure I'm answering your question. No, you are. But it was or not. But this is one of the reasons why I think the term structural racism is so compelling uh, to, to many people. And I, a social scientist, find the evocation of that um, kind of uh, one-size-fits-all um, narrative, structural racism, inadequate to giving an account of what's actually going on. In other words, um, you know, it's not as if there are a bunch of, this is Glenn Lowry now speaking, uh, contra the reliance on structural racism as a category, I want to say. It's not as if there's a bunch of white people meeting somewhere deciding we're going to make the laws this or that in order to uh, repress blacks. And moreover, it's not as if the outcomes that uh, people are concerned about in the example at hand, disparities in the, in, um, in the incidence of incarceration, are independent of the free choices and decisions that are being taken and being made by uh, people, in this case, black people, who might end up finding themselves uh, in prison. 
they made a decision to participate in criminal activities that were clearly uh, known to be um, illicit and perhaps carry the consequences that they are now suffering, didn't they? Uh, sometimes the decisions that they make have enormous negative consequences for other black people, don't they? Uh, do we want to inquire about what's going on in the home and community lives and backgrounds from which people are coming who are uh, the subjects of this racial inequality? Or are we to assume that any such deficits or disadvantages that are causally associated with their involvement in lawbreaking and that are related to their own community organization, structures of family, uh, attentiveness of parenting and so forth are nevertheless themselves the consequence of white racism. Black people wouldn't be acting that way if it weren't for white racism. If there were greater opportunity, if the schools were better funded, uh, if it hadn't been for slavery, uh, the black family would look at it, so forth and so on. And if that's what you mean by structural racism, which is to say every racial disparity is almost by definition a consequence of racism, either because it reflects the contempt for the value of black life, the neglect of the development of black people, or because to the extent that it is a consequence of choices that black people are making themselves, they only are making such choices because of the despair, the, the, the neglect, the lack of opportunity, et cetera, that they have experienced, then um, it seems to me that that's a, a kind of tautology that, that says any disparity by race is by definition a reflection of structural racism. And it's a tautology that as a social scientist, I don't want to embrace. And as an African-American, I'm profoundly skeptical of because mm. at some level, it seems to me, and I'll conclude, I know I've been going on for a while, it kind of surrenders the possibility of African-American agency uh, saying that everything uh, that is of a negative uh, character, uh, that is a, a reflection of inequality, uh, of disparity in which blacks are on the short end, everything uh, is a consequence of this, um, of this history. How is it that blacks are unable to make our own lives, notwithstanding whatever the history may have been? Uh, are there not variations and differentiations within the black population that perhaps one could identify and extol the virtue of certain patterns of behavior and reactions to environmental conditions that seem to be, um, you know, more effective and more life-affirming, more uh, successful than others. So, so I don't like structural racism because it's um, imprecise, because it's a kind of dead end in a way. Mm. It leaves us dependent upon, leaves us, I mean African-Americans, dependent upon a kind of um, dispensation to be bestowed by powerful whites who actually are moral agents, who actually do have the ability to choose or not uh, various ways of life. Uh, including responding affirmatively to our demands for redress of our of our subordination. Whites are powerful. Whites are agents. Whites can do the right thing or the wrong thing. Blacks are merely historical chips. We're merely cogs, automata, being driven by the fact of slavery, by the fact of Jim Crow segregation, and so on, and ultimately not responsible for our own and our children's lives. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very complex picture, and I, I think. One thing I just got from what you said is that even if it's true, even if you could draw a straight line from slavery and Jim Crow to the state of inequality and social 
dysfunction in the black community as a matter of history and a matter of just causality through time. That's not to say that in the year 2016, the ambient level of white racism is the ongoing cause of these problems. And that if you could just get white people to be less racist, but if you could wave a magic wand and literally dissect out all of the racism harbored by white people on any level, that would magically correct for all of the problems you just articulated. That, that doesn't follow. So what does it get you if you really can trace that line, that 200-year-old line to the present, where does that leave you? I mean, it leaves you with something like, you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates's picture of reality, where what we should be talking about now is, you know, paying reparations for slavery. And, and that's, I mean, I, don't, I actually don't have, I don't know what I think about that. I, I, I know what I think about Coates's style of talking about this issue. And the fact that I'm talking to you and not to him suggests, you know, where I think the more profitable and civil and rational conversation is going to be had. Frankly, I, at one point I thought I would, you know, someone recommended that I have him on the podcast. And I just, you know, honestly, I feel like the conversation would be a disaster. This style of talking just strikes me as, I mean, if, you know, to put this in kind of starkly invidious terms from which he would want to defend himself, it just, it does strikes me as not intellectually honest in its totality. It's very there's a kind of pandering to white guilt and black rage that never stops. And you, we, we can't just talk about facts in a, in, in a civil way. And so that, that worries me. Let, let me say something here. Yeah. Um, and we can talk more about Coates if, if, if it suits you. And I'm happy to not do so. But I, there are a couple of things that I want to say. Uh, one of them is um, I, I want to mention the name Thomas Chatterton Williams. Uh, he's an African-American. Um, he's uh, 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 younger than Coates. He's, he's maybe 10 years younger than Coates, which puts him in his early 30s. Um, he lives in Paris. He's a trained philosopher, uh, graduate of Georgetown uh, University, and um, I'm not sure where he did graduate study, but I think he did some graduate study in philosophy as well. And he has an essay. It's published in the London Review of Books. Mm. Uh, and it is a review essay of uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates' book, Between the World and Me. And the burden of uh, Thomas Chatterton Williams' argument in that essay is that uh, Coates's uh, open letter to his son, in which he advises his son that America is so thoroughly contemptuous of your value as a human being that you must not ever, ever relax. You must not trust these people or turn your back on them. They will rip you to shreds. They will. There's nothing more American than taking a guy like you, hanging you from a lamppost and tearing your limbs off one by one. Don't believe in the American dream. Uh, we are uh, uh, up against an implacable force. That force erases your humanity. It's always been so, and it will always be so. This is a paraphrase of the posture that Coates takes in between and me. I think it's an accurate paraphrase. And uh, Williams, Thomas Chatterton Williams, in the London Review of Books, uses it as a point of departure to say, um, there's no place to go from here. Mm. You know, for black people, this is an absolutely bleak uh, landscape, and it is disempowering. Uh, it just surrendered agency. 
there's only one possible future here in this, and it's a it's a very bleak one indeed. And he thinks that's both untrue of the actual historical, socio-historical circumstances in the United States, rather more complicated than that. But he also thinks it's soul-killing, that it's an existential surrender of one's humanity to take such a posture. So I just want to mention that so that your listeners uh, who might not have uh, come across Thomas Chatterton William, who, by the way, submitted that essay to The New Yorker, I happen to know on good authority, Mm. and it sat on an editor's desk uh, for many months and was eventually killed. It's an absolutely brilliant, if controversial, engagement with Ta-Nehisi Coates' book. And so uh, Williams ends up taking it to the London Review of Books because he couldn't get it published in the United States. Yeah, yeah. Because the liberal, if you will, cognoscenti, uh, the, the, the ruling class of cultural mandarins um, will not tolerate that kind of argument from an African-American contra uh, the stance that, uh, that Ta-Nehisi Coates has taken. So that's one thing I want to mention. The other, and I'll be very brief, is Mitch Landrew. Mitch Landrew, former mayor of the city of New Orleans. Mm. Um, out at Aspen, at the Ideas Festival at Aspen a couple of years ago, Landrew and Coates were paired up in a panel in which they were discussing, well, race and inequality in America. And Coates was taking the posture that we know uh, he would take. Uh, And Landrieu was armed with what he called the books of the dead. Now, the books of the dead were literally the case books from his police department in the city of New Orleans uh, that recorded the details of as yet unresolved homicide cases in that city. There were hundreds of them. um, And 90 percent or more of the victims in these cases were black. Uh, people. And uh, Landrieu was trying to say to Coates, in uh, response to Coates's uh, arguments about the implacability of American racism and the erasure of black humanity and the devaluation of the black body, that black people are killing themselves in very large numbers in the industry. Now, he's not uh, Sean Hannity conservative with the wagging his finger about black on black crime. This is Mitch Landrieu, centrist Democrat, mayor of a uh, city, New Orleans, in this case, uh, scion of a political family of some prominence, Democrats in Louisiana, and served as mayor of New Orleans and confronting ta Coates at the Aspen Ideas Festival in a debate about race and inequality in America, in which Coates had taken a position that we know that he takes. And uh, Landrieu had tried to call to, gently, call to the attention of the audience Uh, the observation that uh, much of the threat to um, the integrity of black bodies and black life are coming from other black people, uh, offering as evidence of that his uh, so-called books of the dead, which were the case books um, that were a compendium of the uh, details about unresolved homicide cases in New Orleans, the vast, vast majority of which, 90% of whom were uh, the victims were were African-American. Um, Coates's response to Landrieu was to dismiss him with the back of his hand. This, by the way, is written up in New York Magazine. Uh, one searches New York Magazine, um, Coates and um, Landrieu. Uh, you'll find a very long uh, essay that uh, is about ta Coates and that reports on this encounter. Uh, Coates's response was to give Landrieu the back of his hand. There ain't nothing wrong with black people that 
ending white supremacy wouldn't fit. Mm. What do you expect people to do? They're rats in a barrel. You've got the lid on the barrel. You, you open the lid and peek down in there and you find that they're at each other's throats. Well, what would you expect to happen? It's the frigging barrel, man. You're going to blame the rats? Okay, that's my metaphor mm-hmm. and not what kind of Hussey Coates might have used, but it's capturing this idea that the mayhem, uh, the um, uh, despicable devaluation of life attendant to people riding up and down a street in an automobile with heavy weapons, firing them uh, more or less aimlessly out the window at their gang rivals and killing innocent bystanders along the way, and this happening in the scores and hundreds uh, within a year in a given city, that that kind of mayhem, that that kind of despicable contempt for human life shown by black people toward other black people is not relevant Mm. to assessing uh, what it is that actually imperils black life because those behaviors are understood themselves to be the consequence of a system and a history uh, of oppression. Now, you can say this. You can say this with uh, eloquence and, and style. You can say this with fury and anger. You can say this with economy of word and clever turn of phrase, as ta Coates has been given to do. But it doesn't make it a valid moral argument. Uh, it seems to me, and I've said this, that Coates was holding a pair of queens and that he was looking at an ace face up and that he was bluffing. In other words, he was daring Mitch Landrew to come back at him and say, what an absurdity. You're telling me that people have to run up and down the street firing guns out of windows and killing their brethren because uh, we didn't we didn't get re- reparations for slavery handed over to you yet? Because uh, somebody who was mayor of this city 10 years ago happened to be a racist? Because the police department has somebody who's affiliated with the Ku Klux Klan in it? And you're telling me that that explains or somehow excuses or cancels out the moral judgment that I would otherwise bring to bear against any other community in which I saw this happening. You're telling me that the history of slavery and Jim Crow now a century in the past is pertinent to our reaction to this lived experience on a daily basis of African-Americans in my American city. You're beneath contempt to to talk in that way. You're the one who has no real respect for the value of black life. You live in a bubble. Why don't you get out of it and walk the streets of some of these places where people are dying? Now, Coates will flash out, oh, well, I was raised in Baltimore at a time when, and I've seen enough gang activity, and I know what's going on inside and out, and I've been there, whatever. And Landrew can say, the body count continues to mount while your blather titillates the the, the cultural elites in Washington, D.C. and New York City and gives guilty white people an excuse not to feel so guilty while you blather on we're actually burying the dead. Landry might have responded to him like that. He might have told him to get the heck out of here with that uh, nonsense that attempts to intellectualize what any person with common sense can see as an absolute disaster. You're blaming white people for black people living some like barbarians? You're blaming white people for that? He might have said to him. That's mm-hmm. what I said to him. Landry folded the hand with a pair of now, you've convinced me that we need to stage a public debate between you and Coates and put it on primetime television. That'll be worth seeing. Let's talk about the, the mayhem. Uh, let's get into the, the question of violence. So, so here's the basic picture, as I understand it. America 
is distinguished as one of the most violent societies in, in the developed world, as almost everyone knows, almost entirely because of the level of crime and violence in the black community. And this is, this is true even if you include all the mass shootings from crazy white guys, right, that make the news. Violent crime in America is overwhelmingly a problem of black men killing other black men. And what, what I just learned in preparation for this podcast, I, and I'm, I'm embarrassed not to have really had a complete picture of this problem, but you recommended this book, Ghetto Side, on your podcast, oh, yeah. which I also recommend. What I just learned is that this has been a problem more or less since the end of slavery. It's, it didn't start with the crack epidemic in the 80s, which is more or less what I thought and I think many people believe. And you can read newspaper editorials in the 19th century that give the predictable racist topspin to this, where they say more or less, you know, this is God's form of population control. Let the black man kill himself out of existence. That works for us. But so this, this problem of black men killing other black men is an old problem. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying that white racism or structural racism or both, you know, white personal racism or the, the attendant structures that, that endure even after that's overcome don't have some role to play here. But the facts on the ground is that black men are killing other black men in overwhelming numbers. And violent crime in America peaked in 1993, and it has fallen precipitously since, perhaps with the exception of a, of a, of a recent uptick in major cities, which people fear is due to cops now being afraid to be caught on cell phone cameras arresting black suspects. So that, that this has now been called the Ferguson effect. And I'm not sure, I mean, do, do you have a, an opinion at this point about whether the Ferguson effect is actually real or is, that, is, is the jury still out on that? I think the jury is still out on it. I, I don't think enough time has gone by with enough data for there to, to really be a persuasive empirical argument. Mm. Uh, it's speculation. You do have the accounts of some people active in law enforcement in cities around the country saying, indeed, cops are back, morale is low, uh, everybody's, every uh, body is armed with a mobile phone recording device now, and they, they are afraid to do their jobs. You have this kind of anecdotal evidence. Heather McDonald at the Patton mm. Institute, uh, whose book, The War on Cops, is, uh, has just come out recently, uh, is a leading proponent of the Ferguson effect. Um, there's a guy, I'll think of his name in a moment, at, uh, not at Washington University, at uh, um, I think it's the University of Missouri. His name is Rosenfeld. I'll think of the first name momentarily. Rosenfeld at the University of Missouri, St. Louis, who is an expert criminologist uh, who has recently been saying, at first he thought the Ferguson effect was an exaggeration, but now with the uptick in uh, data of, of, of violent crime in cities and so forth, he's not so sure. So there's, there's some people who are big proponents of it. There are a lot of people who are uh, uh, deniers of it. Um, and Richard Rosenfeld, I place him in the middle as a relatively objective observer, and he's saying the jury is out. So I'm going to go with him and say, as far as I can tell, it's not here one way or the other quite yet. Mm. But anyway, you were saying. So, and this is, again, these are facts that some I were familiar with, but many of the numbers I have now are plucked from that book, Ghetto Side. At its peak, violent crime, and this is not, again, 1993, in a city like Los Angeles, the homicide rate for black men in their early 20s was 368 per 100,000 per year. Now, that, that is a 100 times higher 
than is normal in any civilized society that we would recognize. It's, it's in fact, it's more than that. It's probably 200 times higher than, than most cities in Western Europe. And I don't even think about someplace like Japan. That, that's completely off the map. And it's, it's a similar rate of death as that suffered by U.S. soldiers deployed to Iraq at the height of the war. So you have young black men who are literally living in a war zone and they're killing one another. And again, so the, the crime rate has fallen since, but it, it remains that the proportion in the black community remains as high. In fact, it might remain, it might actually be a little higher. It might not have fallen quite as much in the black community in the last 20 years. The facts on the ground at the moment, as I understand them, are that black men comprise 6% of the population, and they are currently 40% of those who get murdered. And again, they die in, in the vast majority of cases at the hands of other black men who commit over 50% of the murders in the country. So you have, you have 6% of the population committing over 50% of the murders. Most of those murders are of other black men. Now, is that, do I have my facts straight uh, up That's to that point? Consistent. I mean, I don't have a book open in front of me to give exact numbers, but those numbers are uh, as far as I know, uh, accurate, uh, certainly qualitatively, they're in the ballpark. I've seen the same kind of statistics, yes. Mm. That's correct. What right. you said is correct. I'll put a, just one other fact in play here, which I really, again, I, I, I think I learned from this book, Ghetto Side. And I guess if you had asked me before reading the book, I could have told you something like this, but it, it just didn't, I didn't have this concrete statement in my head. And it seems very important, which is that we know that there's been a problem of, of extraordinarily bad policing in the black community and far too often by white cops, right? So there, there have been some very visible instances of cops who've used inappropriate force in, in arresting or in defending themselves from black suspects. And the result is that the community believes itself to be unfairly profiled for crime and that it suffers an inordinate number of lethal encounters with cops as a result. Now, and we're, going to t we're certainly going to talk about whether that perception is true in terms of the, the level of, of lethality from, from encounters with cops. But there's no question that, that, that a movement like Black Lives Matter is born of the perception that, that these facts are true. And, yeah. and, that, and that white racism, whether it's implicit or, or explicit, is, is the underlying cause of all this. But one thing I got from Ghetto Side is that and you, you, you mentioned this already, that there's a lot of talk about how the criminal justice system disproportionately targets and incarcerates young black men. That seems to be true when you're talking about petty crimes or when you're talking about the war on drugs, which has obviously been a disaster. But murders in the black community generally go unsolved. And, and the main reason is that witnesses refuse to testify. And obviously some of that reluctance is understandable because they're afraid of getting killed. But it seems to me that this is a problem that can't be pinned on police misconduct or white racism. But the problem in the hood is that you have murderers walking around unpunished, right? And, and the state monopoly on violence just doesn't exist. And so people either refuse to testify or they take the law into their own hands and it perpetuates the cycle of violence. So paradoxically, or seemingly paradoxically, the black community is suffering from too much application of law and order on petty crimes and on you know nonviolent drug crimes, which I have argued before no one should be punished for, and too little law and order on crimes that really matter. You just have a you you have a kind of state of nature situation with respect to murder. And you know, if the Ferguson effect is real, 
it would be a terrible irony because obviously the, the solution to, to violence in the black community can't be a matter of neglect from law enforcement. Again, I, I put that to you as please give me a reality check or a sanity check on, on those points. Okay. Um, you, you said quite a bit. There, there are a number of things I want to touch on in response. I hope I can, I can remember all of them. Uh, yes, I think that Jill Leovy, L-E-O-V-Y, who's the author of um, Ghetto Side, uh, this uh, book you've been referring to, uh, does, a, does a great service in her description, her, her granular, you know, on the ground, uh, detailed account of what homicide detectives trying to deal with uh, the problems of killing in uh, South Central Los Angeles are up against. And you're right. One of the things that they're up against is the difficulty of persuading uh, people who have the information necessary to bring a case effectively in court against someone alleged to have committed a murder, uh, their reluctance to cooperate with the police. Um, and you're right, uh, Jill Leovi wants to underscore what horrible um, consequences follow from the fact that it's possible to kill more or less with impunity. If people don't want to come in to testify, the effect of that is going to be to um, reduce the likelihood that anybody who actually uh, commits one of these offenses will ever be brought to account. The idea that you can kill with impunity um, makes it possible to really intimidate witnesses. And you can see how this becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy or a self-reinforcing dynamic. Mm. Uh, one thing I think people would want uh, people who are, you know, sympathizers with Black Lives Matter and others would want to uh, insist that I say here, and I don't mind saying it, is that um, the unwillingness of witnesses to cooperate with the police is partly a reflection of their fear that they will suffer some reprisal, but it's also partly a reflection of their distrust of the police, which is itself a consequence of the historical practices of police in these communities, which have failed to earn the trust mm the citizens. So if police have been bad actors, maybe if only a few of them, but those uh, people come and they get away with it. If the police are unsympathetic, they don't know the community, don't live there. Uh, if they uh, treat people in their ordinary intercourse with uh, citizens uh, who are black with contempt, if they're too quick to resort to violence uh, in their encounters with black people, uh, and so on. Uh, and in the extreme, if they're prepared to use lethal force when it's unjustified and the victims are black, who can blame the community for not wanting to snitch, not wanting to have anything to do with the police? So in a way, yes, this cycle of violence uh, could be traced, in, uh, uh, if, if one looks carefully, uh, to uh, the consequences of racism in the case at hand, alienation between the communities and the police that's a consequence of racism affecting the police's dealing with the community in, in uh, days gone by. Mm. Uh, the other thing I think I should say is that, uh, and again, people would want to make this point, they'd make it right away, uh, there can be no surprise that most of the murders that are occurring where blacks are victims have been perpetrated by black people because murder is the kind of crime in which uh, the um, more often than not, the person who's uh, victimized and the person who commits the crime are connected to each other in some way. They may know each other or they're a part of the same social network or they're located in the same general uh, geographic uh, social space. Uh, and so people kill uh, those who are connected to them in some way. And given the segregated patterns of 
uh, of social affiliation and residential location in our society, it can be no surprise that most of the blacks who are killed are killed by other blacks. It's also true that most of the whites who are killed are killed by other whites. Um, that's an argument that people will make. I don't think it's adequate to the problem that you've described because it doesn't account for the two orders of magnitude difference in the rate at which people are being killed. Mm. It's almost tautological to say, yes, that most people who are killed are going to be killed by somebody who, quote, looks like them, close quote, in the sense that they are of the same race. But it doesn't speak to the issue of the incidence of these killings occurring at so much higher a rate. So it still makes sense to talk about black people killing black people, not as a matter of emphasizing the race of the persons who are killed, as much as of emphasizing the qualitatively distinct character of the killing. Um, finally, I want to say uh, something that my colleague and friend Rajiv Sethi, uh, mm. economist at Columbia University, Barnard College, would insist that I say, and I think it's a point worth making, which is that sometimes killing and epidemics of killing have a kind of logic of their own uh, in the sense that if I think somebody is trying to kill me, suppose I have a dispute, suppose I step on this fellow's shoe, the shoe was newly shined, he's sitting on the bus with his foot slightly out in the aisle, I walk past and I step on the shoe. He looks up at me and expects an apology and I sneer at him and keep walking. Everybody sees it and laughter breaks out somewhere in the bus. Oh man, he dissed you. He stepped on your shoe. You're going to let him do that? Okay. So now we have a beef. Okay. He says to me, you MF, you diss me like that. You step on my shoe and don't apologize. I'm going to friggin' kill you. Okay. And he says it in exactly that tone and he gets off the bus. Now, how do I know that tonight or tomorrow, I'm not going to be sitting on my porch, and that fellow's going to drive by with his homeboys, and they're going to start blasting out the window, and me or somebody I love is going to be dead. I've got a beef. It's not like I can go to the cops and say, mm. this man threatened my life and expect that anything effective is going to happen. I just might want to take preemptive action. I, I might want to make sure that I'm the one who's doing the shooting, and he's the one who's doing the dying. Uh, so we have a situation where um, uh, the, the fact that there is no dispute resolution mechanism on which I can rely that will protect me in my person, protect my family and my household, leads me to want to take matters into uh, my own hands. Suppose I know that if I go to the police, suppose a murder has happened, my brother is killed, there's this famous, uh, now famous uh, incident that's reported uh, by Alice Goffman. Alice Goffman is a young sociologist whose book, uh, On the Run, is an account of um, guys in Philadelphia who are being sought by the police authorities and who are on the lam, trying to avoid being taken into custody. And she lives among them and gets to know them very well and writes an ethnographic study of what life is like in this quarter of our society amongst people who are uh, being sought by the law. Mm. The book is called On the Run, and I highly recommend it. Alice Goffman is a very fine, very promising young uh, ethnographer. But in any case, in any case, famously, uh, she gets to know uh, these guys very well, and one of their number is killed. 
in a gang dispute conflict, which leads to gunplay. And, um, you know, the surviving friends, and she's close to all of them, decide that they're going to take matters into their own hand and get revenge because otherwise nothing will happen. Mm. Given, given that there's so many unresolved uh, homicide cases in America's big cities, they know the chances that justice is actually going to be done are slim. And so they decide that they can't let it stand. And she's actually, she records this in her book, in the vehicle with the surviving uh, buddies of this social group that she had gotten to know, riding around looking for the assailant. She is driving them. <laughs> okay. And this became such a, uh, you know, a kind of notorious thing because she's, after all, she's a scholar. She's, you know, she's an academic. She's a professor of sociology at the, at the University of Wisconsin. I mean, Did her grant money pay for the gas in that car? You want, one wonders, you know, and, and, and what would the Institutional Review Board that is supposed to supervise uh, research involving human subjects have to say about this? Mm. But in any case, um, uh, they don't find the assailant. And so she doesn't actually become an accomplice to murder. But the anecdote I tell at length here is meant to underscore the fact that people may need, feel the need to take matters into their own hand, tit for tat, mm. uh, because they can't rely on civil authority to resolve these, uh, these kind of things in a satisfactory way. So both the strategic preemption element and the kind of, there is no law except the law I make, and therefore it's the Wild West, and I'm going to settle this matter in my own way, will tend to elevate the level of this kind of violence uh, within uh, racially, class, geographically defined, um, you know, orbits of social interaction like inner city neighborhoods. Hmm. So uh, having said that, those things might somehow account for some of the elevated level of homicide, although, you know, um, uh, given the number 6% of the population, 40% of the murders, uh, can you quantitatively account for that? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm dubious about that. Other things may be, must be going on, one wonders, one, one imagines. Well, just to stick with your anecdote for a second, other things have to be going on because there is no body, certainly not the cops, that can preemptively resolve a problem like that in even the most effete and privileged white circles. You know, so if I'm, if I'm walking through a Starbucks and I step on someone's toe and fail to apologize and the person is pissed, that thing doesn't escalate because one, I will almost certainly apologize. And two, if I'm so distracted that I didn't and he says something, my culturally acquired conflict resolution skills will kick in, one hopes, to a degree that will mollify him. And I will not be left with the sense that someone now believes it's his full-time job to figure out how to kill me. But at no point in that process do I get to resort to the cops or even the, you know, the barista in the Starbucks to resolve the matter? And if it does escalate, if it comes to the point where this guy is actually committed to killing me, I am in sort of the situation you are in in the hood. I mean, it's not like, you know, I, I, I receive death threats and I know what it's like to talk to the FBI and the cops and try to resolve those situations. And there's very little they can do preemptively. I mean, this is not, we don't live in minority report where, where the people can get arrested for pre-crime, the level of threat has to be so high before anyone from the state will take action preemptively. We are talking about cultural memes and attitudes and norms that must be allowing for the regular eruption of lethal violence. And also we're talking about teenagers 
often, right? So, you know, you know, they don't, don't even have their brains fully wired up, you know, in terms of their frontal cortices that would prevent any of this behavior. So let me say this to you, Sam, just very quickly. This mm-hmm. is still the context of the anecdote. Yeah. Uh, and it would be observed. Your, your Starbucks analogy is interesting in the sense that it underscores your privilege uh, in the following way. I was deliberately underscoring my privilege. I was, I was trying to think of something fancier than Starbucks, but couldn't. So. But what I mean is, what I mean is this. Uh, you say cultural memes. I think we ought to unpack that a little bit. You, as a middle-class white person in a Starbucks, have absolutely no investment in your public persona as a tough guy. That, that is, the, the, the advantages of your cultural location and uh, social economic location are such that you lose nothing from offering that apology. Mm. From, you say, deploying your conflict uh, resolution skills, well, yeah, partly their skills, but also partly they are the advantage of being nestled comfortably within a complex of social interactions in which a reputation for toughness is of no particular value to you. On the other hand, if you were someone like ta Coates growing up in um, inner city Baltimore uh, when he did uh, 25 years ago or whatever uh, as a teenager, um, it would be absolutely a burden on you going forward to be thought of as a pussy, to be thought of as a wuss, as weak, as somebody who backs down, as someone who doesn't have the courage to fight. The cultivation of that kind of persona or reputation uh, comes to be um, unthought reflex, uh, automatic reflex uh, in, uh, uh, in in that kind of environment, uh, so that uh, you can't seem to be uh, somebody who would who would back down. Mm. And a, a person living in inner city Baltimore simply doesn't have the luxury. It's not as if they don't know. It's not in their cultural toolkit. So would this argument go uh, to rely upon more civil means of conflict resolution? Uh, and, you know, lowering the temperature and so forth and so on. It's that the, the bitter fruit of their uh, isolation over such a period of time with so little opportunity and so much kind of damage that's been done is partly that they have to carry themselves through the world and with a certain swagger. Uh, they have to uh, evince a certain, you know, hair trigger sensibility, willingness to uh, go to the ultimate, you know, uh, 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 level if it comes to that. Um, that's just a way of being in the world cultivated uh, necessarily in that environment, which is, uh, you can call it culture if you want to, but if you fail to see that it's a product of history and um, the, the social oppression of uh, African Americans in these ghettos, you would be doing a grave disservice to the people who live there. That that kind of argument. Yeah, well, I actually would agree with virtually all of that. And I I could easily imagine suddenly finding myself in more or less the the same condition. I mean, if I I were sent to prison, if I found myself in a maximum security prison, well, then despite my best intentions and everything I know about how people should behave around each other so as to maximize their well-being, I would find myself with no choice given the way the incentives are aligned to behave in precisely that way. And, and I mean, I've written about this before, you know, it's like the, it's the, the only rational choice for any person being sent to a maximum security prison is to become immediately affiliated with the gang of his, you know, appropriate skin color so as to be as immune as possible in the perpetual race war that goes on in those prisons. And 
So you might you literally might not have a, a racist bone in your body. You might be who is it? Morris Dees from the the Southern Poverty Law Center. You know, sent to prison. The only rational choice for him is to join the white Aryan gangs. Other, otherwise, everyone will prey on him. And so I, I understand that there are those contexts, and to some degree, the the isolation you're describing in certainly in the inner city among you know gang members in in the black community shares many of the same incentives that one notices in a prison. Let's pivot to the the issue of police violence. And I want to kind of creep up on the on the Fryer study that has gotten a lot of press. And yeah. I want to ask your opinion of that. But a few basic facts here so that, again, and this is in my recent reading, 4% of blacks who die by homicide are killed by cops, right? So, so 96% are not killed by cops. Yeah. Again, virtually all of them are killed by other black men. Yeah. There's not a lot of white men killing black men. And there's, as you pointed out, there's not a lot of black men killing white men, though there are more going in that direction. But most violence is intra-racial. And incidentally, 12% of whites and Hispanics who die by homicide are killed by cops. So that's a, it's at three times the rate are killed by cops in terms of those who, who die by another person's hand. And I mean, as, as we get into this data, you know, we should admit that statistics are, are a bit of a Rorschach test. It's possible to read even valid statistics in misleading ways or in ways that are guided by bias. And, and needless to say, we'll do our best not to do that. But here are just a few more facts as I understand them. A thousand people are killed each year in the U.S. by cops, more or less. And around 50% of these fatalities are white and about 25% are black. Right. Now, that, that's double what you'd expect from the demographics, because as, as you said, about 12 to 13% of the population are black. But they commit Again, 50% of, of all violent crime, at least. And in, in some cities, it's as much as two-thirds of all violent crime. So my question for you and for our listeners to ponder is, given how much crime black men are committing in our society, again, mostly against other black men, and given how much attention from the police they will naturally attract because of this and should attract in the hopes of keeping the black community safe, what percentage of fatal encounters with cops would make sense? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I'm surprised. Just look at, I, never having heard of the Friar study, which we'll talk about, just looking at these data that it's, it's only 25% that are black, that strikes me as, as surprisingly low. Yeah. Um, so I cannot respond to your question, what percent should we expect given the aggregate statistics? Since I don't think the aggregate statistics are adequate uh, to the assessment of the individual encounters between uh, black people and police that lead to shootings. Mm. But let me explain that. I think that might have been a little bit cryptic. I'm not sure I made myself clear. Um, I want to use an analogy. Um, let's suppose that a survey finds that um, on average, women make 70 cents for every dollar that men make in the labor market. I just make that number up, mm. but a number something like that is undoubtedly true. Certainly less than 100%. The 70% number has been thrown around. Um, and someone says to me, given the fact that uh, women have uh, the bulk of the child-rearing responsibilities, 
often take time off from work in order to um, attend to those responsibilities, are disproportionately electing to pursue careers in uh, lines of activity that, you know, like caregiving or teaching or something like that. And I don't mean to traffic in stereotypes. I'm just imagining a hypothetical response, which pay less than, let's say, I don't know, construction work or engineering or something like that. Uh, given that men and women are different in so many ways, exactly what proportion of their earnings on the dollar would you expect? If you don't think 70 cents, if you think 70 cents is too low, should it be 85? Certainly it shouldn't be 100, given the fact that women are, you know, withdrawing from the labor force in order to attend disproportionately to childbearing responsibilities and so on. Someone says something like that. Now, I don't know how to answer that question when the, the, the moral issue was, are women being treated fairly in the workplace? Are they getting paid the same as men for the same work? Mm. So that's kind of a question about what happens to an individual woman when she encounters an employer. And a use of these aggregate averages doesn't reach that question. Given the background facts you describe, I would expect women to work less, but I would still expect them to get paid the same for doing precisely the same job. Now, I'm not saying there, w- there wouldn't be some economic consequences for working less. You might not advance you know, on, up the hierarchy as much as men in the aggregate. But the two vice presidents of the company, men and man and woman, need to be paid the same. And I, and I think that's clear. I guess the issue here is that if, if there's much more crime being perpetrated by black men, if, if the call to the cop says, you know, uh, somebody's just been shot and can you describe the, the shooter? Yeah, he was a black guy. And the cops show up. If that happens more often, right, just by definition, your cops are are going to be looking for and encountering black men more than white men. Yeah. And given that any encounter with a cop can escalate to lethality just by dint of either reasonably or by dint of incompetence on the part of the cops, you'd expect the rate to be higher than just the the demographic of 12% would suggest. And so I'm just... We're on the same page here. Yes, you would expect the rate to be higher. The question is how much higher. That was the question that you asked me. Yeah. Uh, likewise, as you say, uh, fairness would dictate that if it were the same job, the man and the woman should be paid the same rate. But the question would be, how would I know from aggregate statistics whether or not I was really comparing like with like? Right. Uh, I need individualized data. I need data at the level of the encounters between police and citizens to assess whether or not the circumstances in which blacks and the police encounter each other and the rate of killing of police by blacks comes out to be what it is are similar mm. to this. Let me, let me uh, put, let me put this. Um, let me just say that seems like a perfect segue to talk about the Friar study, which it is that, that, that what's what I regard to be virtuous and you should introduce it properly about that study is the fact that such conclusions as are drawn there subject to what qualifications we might want to bring are based upon individualized data of encounters between officers and citizens, not upon a comparison of aggregate rates across um, large collectivities where you don't really know whether you're comparing like with like. Yeah. So, yeah, so the study was performed by Roland Fryer at Harvard, who I believe he was a student of yours. Is that correct? And that's an important qualifier. I I like Roland Fryer very much. Uh, I was his mentor when he was in graduate school, and he and I have written some papers together. We're very uh, uh, good of friends and close colleagues, uh, and indeed he was. I'm proud of him. Uh, he's now, you know, one of the leading uh, young, uh, I'm young, mean under 40, 
applied economists uh, working today. So perhaps you're probably better placed to summarize the findings of this study as well as the flaws, but I would just say that some people have pointed out flaws and limitations. And one of those, one of the people that I'm aware of was Rajiv Sethi, who you just mentioned, who was, who was on your podcast. Yes. And, there, and there was some concern that the characteristics of, of the sample who sample of people arrested didn't match those of the people killed. Perhaps you can just discuss the Friar findings and, and the limitations as you, as you currently see them. But I guess also there was another problem that this is not representative of the whole nation. He took specific cities and, and looked at their data. It's an ongoing project, and I expect we're going to see more uh, out of it as uh, time goes on. Uh, the study in question, which was uh, reported uh, about in a front page piece in the New York Times just after it was released, is now a working paper at the National Bureau for Economic Research. Uh, anyone can find that online and can download uh, the study and look at it. Um, it's based on data from the city of Houston. Uh, Friar's ongoing project has data from other cities as well, but the study at hand, uh, its main findings are based upon data from the city of Houston. And what he finds is that and I'll explain in more detail exactly what these data are, analyzing those data with, a, with an eye toward detecting whether or not the likelihood that a suspect, a citizen, is shot by a police officer, trying to control for the specific aspects of the encounter between a police officer and the citizen, those aspects being things like what part of town uh, does it occur in, what time of day, has the suspect been, um, uh, is he armed or she? Uh, did the uh, police come to the scene as a consequence of a report of illegal activity? Uh, was the suspect uh, resisting or in some other way uh, attempting to avoid uh, being uh, processed by a police officer? Um, were third parties, innocent third parties, uh, endangered by the behavior of the suspect? All these kinds of Details of the encounter are known to Fryer, and he attempts to control for them uh, in an effort to ascertain whether the likelihood that the police officer uh, discharges his weapon um, against the suspect is greater when the suspect is black. Other things equal. Now, this last, other things equal, the ceteris paribus, is critical. Other things equal. So um, the way he proceeds is he's got two populations of um, people in um, citizen police encounters in the city of Houston. And this is based upon data made available to his research team by the uh, Houston Police Department. One of them are arrestees. So within a given period of time, all of the persons who are arrested uh, by uh, Houston police, uh, about whom for each arrest, a detailed report has to be filed by the police officer and Fryer has access to these narrative accounts. So the police officer in processing the arrest needs to write it up, and they write up what happened, leading to the arrest, the justification for the arrest, and so on. And that's all reported. Uh, so that's the arrestee population. And he knows, for example, whether or not the police officer discharged a weapon uh, in the process of prosecuting the arrest. Separately, he has the uh, population of people who were shot by uh, police officers. So the arrestee universe, the universe of people who were arrested by police are thought of as those who were most likely uh, to be um, the victims of shooting. So, so 
shooting by cops. By a cop, yeah, by a cop. They 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 were susceptible to being shot by the cop. They either were or they were not. Mm. But uh, the fact that they were arrested means that there was an encounter in which shooting might have occurred. So he's got this zero one variable. It's one if the shot shooting occurred and zero if it didn't occur. Of course, of course, in the vast majority of the arrests, shooting didn't occur, but sometimes it did. Uh, and he's trying to uh, uh, use as a you know, so-called logistic regression analysis to estimate the probability that a shooting would occur in the context of an arrest uh, as a function of the features of the arrest, which are such as I described, where, when, uh, and under what conditions that the policeman encountered the citizen, and also whether the citizen is black. And what he's finding is that the likelihood of the police officer shooting in this uh, arrest population once you control for every aspect that he can observe about the encounter between a police officer and the citizen is no greater if the citizen is black than if the citizen is white. And indeed, it's slightly less mm. uh, than uh, uh, if the citizen is white. So on that basis, he concludes that the likelihood of the use of uh, deadly force by a police officer, attempted uh, use of deadly force by the police officer shooting a suspect, uh, is not greater if you're black once you control for the features of the encounter between the police officer and the citizen. As well, he finds that the likelihood that the police would um, use uh, physical force in their encounter, short of shooting, uh, putting cuffs on someone, uh, using a baton or a taser, uh, forcing them to lie down on the street while they're being uh, interrogated or taken into custody. Uh, what Fryer speaks of generically is uh, the laying on of hands, the use of hands, mm. uh, is greater. And again, it does the same kind of analysis. Uh, is some kind of physical force short of deadly force used against the uh, suspect as a function of all the things that we can see about the encounter, including the race of the suspect? Does it seem to depend, once you've controlled for those other things, on the race of the suspect? His answer there is yes. Um, about a 25% greater chance that some kind of force short of shooting will be used against the suspect if he's black than if he's white, other things equal, and about a 28% or so less of a probability that shooting will be used against the suspect if he's black mm. than if white, other things equal. Okay, so that's the broad outline of his findings are uh, race is implicated, uh, blackness as uh, uh, being a factor in the police use of force short of deadly force, but is not implicated as a factor, and indeed the number goes slightly the other way, in the police use of shooting of a suspect. This in Houston. Uh, now, here's some of the concerns that uh, Rajiv Sethi and others have raised about this finding. A, the only way we know about it is because the police department was willing to let this research team look at their data up in depth. Some the police departments do that, some don't. Not only is this finding limited to Houston because it's only Houston data that we have, and we don't know if that applies to New Orleans or Dallas or Los Angeles, but also we should be suspicious because the fact that Houston would let you get the data perhaps is indicative of the fact that Houston knows that the data are, not, are, are, are largely exculpatory. Mm. And the police departments where the data would not be exculpatory are not letting you see the data. So you can't draw any valid conclusion about policing as such from the fact that you have the data, not only because it's only one city, but because it's not a representative city. The fact that they're giving you the data is 
itself an indication that they're not representative. The other, uh, so that's one major line of critique. Now, Fryer is aware of this, but I mean, he can only analyze the data that he has. Mm. It's an ongoing project. There are other cities in which he has been in contact in the state of Florida. I can't, you know, I don't know what all of they are. Camden, New Jersey, I know he's been very active there. New York City has turned over all of their stop and frisk data uh, to him uh, over a period of years that he is uh, also in the process of analyzing. And by the way, the preliminary analysis of which the New York City stop and frisk data uh, confirms his finding that police are more likely to use force short, short of deadly force against suspects if the suspects are black. Mm. The other criticism, though, is that because he relies on arrest data as the universe of people who might be shot by the police in his effort to ascertain whether or not the police do the shooting and whether the shooting is dependent upon the race of the suspect, because he relies on arrest data, he has implicitly to assume that the processes leading to an arrest work in the same way, regardless of, of the race of the suspect, in order to draw any valid conclusion about whether or not, based on those data, the police are more or less likely to shoot at somebody, uh, given that they're black. He has to assume, for example, that the pool of black arrestees is comparable in its degree of threat mm. posed to the police officer as the pool of white arrestees. But suppose, says Rajiv and others, that the police are uh, menacing relatively innocent black people and arresting them. Sandra Bland gets arrested in Texas for driving for a backtalk uh, to a police officer when she stopped for a broken taillight or for not signaling on lane change or whatever it was. And she's actually taken into custody but a white person in the same circumstance perhaps wouldn't have been taken into custody. Suppose something like that is true. So that the a black population of arrestees disproportionately consists of people who are relatively less threatening than the white population. And Rajiv points out that there are differences by race in some of the other characteristics of the arrested population. The blacks were less likely to be armed than the whites who were arrested, for example. There are relatively more women uh, amongst blacks in the arrested population mm -hmm. than they are white in the arrested population and things of this kind. So suppose the police are discriminatory in how they decide about arresting people and are quicker to arrest blacks who are less threatening than whites. Then the black population of arrestees, if that's true, is on average less threatening than the white population. So finding that the rate at which they are shot is comparable to the rate at which the whites sh are shot is not proof of no discrimination, but rather it's proof of the fact that they're being discriminated against because on the hypothesis that they were less threatening, the blacks who were arrested, we should have expected a much lower rate of shooting, not a comparable rate of shooting in that population. So if Fryer is wrong about the implicit assumption that the police do not discriminate in the processes that lead to someone being arrested based on race, then he's also wrong in the conclusion that from his data, which is based on the arrested population, the likelihood of being shot by the police officer is roughly the same or maybe even a little bit lower if you're black. Mm -hmm. That's the nature of the critique. It's based on assumptions that are not verified in the data, assumptions in this case that the police are biased in the process of arrest. All of that's fascinating, and I think it's obviously hugely important research to continue I would just add that there there is at least one other study I know of that I, I actually didn't read the study. I just saw the coverage in the Washington Post that 
lends some support to Fryer. It was it was it was not a real world data study. It was a, a simulator study where you, they put cops in in a shooting simulator yeah. and watched their choices about who they shot. And in that case, they were actually slower to shoot black suspects than than white ones. And again, who knows if this is a recent phenomenon that's just been internalized based on all of the attention that's been brought to this problem. But in any case, that those are data that are out there. There's, I think there's other data which add a wrinkle here where black officers are actually more likely to shoot unarmed black suspects than white officers are, which cuts against the, the, the narrative of racist policing. So you said this earlier, and I think it deserves to be underscored. The energy behind the, the animus, the angst, the, the, uh, the sense of outrage behind the Black Lives Matter movement. Just stop killing us. We want you to stop killing us, okay? Is premised, it's based upon a, uh, a claim. Mm. Claim is that we know that people are being shot. You say, what should the number be given the disproportion of blacks in crime? I say, that's a hard question to answer without individualized data, which we don't have enough of and so on and so on. But in any case, behind the, the, the movement lies the presumption that race is factoring causally in the police officer's decision to use deadly force in their encounters with citizens. That in effect, the counterfactual that's being entertained is if this person had been white, they wouldn't have been killed. So take a very graphic example, Tamir Rice, that's the 12-year-old mm. death by police in Cleveland, in a park playing with a toy gun that the police presumably mistook to be real and they took his life, okay? The, the, the sense of the matter is, had he been a white boy, 12 years old, in exactly the same circumstance, he wouldn't have been killed. Now, as a social scientist, I recognize that question. I, I, I recognize it because of the difficulty of being able to give a valid statistical answer to it. Because no one will ever live in the parallel universe in which uh, the suspects in these particular instances were, you know, by an experimenter, sometimes black, sometimes white, and we see what the police does. I mean, you know, we do a, a kind of random assignment of people to a treatment and control group, and we observe, and then we can draw a conclusion from uh, what we see that's statistically valid. Nobody lives in that parallel universe. And the problem of drawing a valid statistical inference about a question like that when we uh, have um, imperfect data and we live in a non-experimental world is a, is a huge problem. Uh, that's spoken as a social scientist. We don't have good data to draw statistical conclusions, but we do have uh, the videotape evidence. We, know we do have the recordings on the cell phones of particular incidences. Mm. If I called them anecdotes, you pointed out correctly that 1,000 people are killed by the police in this country every year, 1,000. We have a dozen videos. We have 1,000 people killed, we have a dozen. Let's make it 50. Let's suppose we have 50 videos. We have 1,000 people killed. Um, so what we've got are crumbs. We've got uh, anecdotes. Uh, we've got uh, sensationalized cases. Perhaps they're cherry-picked. Perhaps they're not representative. Perhaps the most egregious cases are the only ones that come to our attention. Mm. Should we have a national narrative leading to a movement, leading to large demonstrations in dozens of cities across the country, leading in some instances to violent retaliatory actions? I'm not blaming that on the movement. I'm just saying it happens in the context in which this kind of discussion is ongoing. 
driven by anecdotes uh, and um, untethered from any rigorous and systematic investigation of uh, such evidence is available to us that attempts at least to be comprehensive and to deal with the universe and, and not with the, the, the cherry pick cases. Um, as a social scientist, I would want to say no. Um, as an observer of culture and politics, I would say that it's very hard to keep the narrative in the box. Once it gets out of the box, once it becomes compelling to people, once they start making analogies with um, slave uh, uh, suppressions and you know, uh, American cities in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, and they start saying this is a part of a very old American story, once we turn ta Colts loose on a dozen cases, all of which are, um, you know, um, uh, buttressed by, uh, by uh, tape recordings and such, um, it, it takes on a life of its own. And mm. uh, this is a grave concern to me that uh, serious political consequences can flow from circumstances that are uh, perhaps not very well understood. I'm very worried about this as well. I, I, I worry that Black Lives Matter, if it got all the attention that it wants, it could set race relations back in this country a generation. I mean, cause, because, you know, obviously I'm not aware of everything that is said under the, the banner of Black Lives Matter, and there could be some highly rational, really impeccable people advocating under, under the, you know, in the stream of this movement. But from what I've seen, it strikes me much of it. And I've, and I've seen it filtered to me through the left-wing media that is largely, if not entirely, sympathetic to the movement. Most of what I have seen said, in particular about these, you know, these videos and the cases about which of which we don't have videos, but which are, have been well described, like the, the Michael Brown shooting, yeah. most has struck me as dangerously and offensively irrational. And so, I mean, here, here's the core issue for me. These cases run the full gamut of police malfeasance and culpability on the one end to completely predictable and even rational uses of force on the other and everything in between. So on the one end, you have cops who are quite obviously guilty of murder, you know, whether it's from racism or some other deranged motive. And I would put Walter Scott and Laquan McDonald, those shootings there. These cops, to my eye, clearly should never have been given a gun and a badge and they belong in prison. And if, if I'm not mistaken, the, the cops involved in those shootings are actually being prosecuted for murder. So the, the, the system is, appears to be working in the right direction on those cases. But on the other end, you have legitimate uses of force that would have happened 99 times out of 100 in the presence of any sane cop and race surely had nothing to do with it. And I, and I would put the Michael Brown case pretty close to that far tail of, uh, on the continuum. And you know, we don't have a video of that, but the facts, as reported, suggest that he attacked a police officer and was trying to get his gun. Now, if you're trying to get a cop's gun, it is only rational for him to believe that you intend to kill him with it. And whatever the color of your skin, you're going to get shot. And if, if you don't get shot, it's because you got very lucky, either because the cop had amazing hand-to-hand -hand skills and he did, just decided to spare your life, or because there were enough cops on hand to physically overpower you without requiring lethal force. In the rest of these cases, you have almost every variety of incompetence and bad luck and poor training and just basic human chaos. 
And I would put, you know, all these recent ones, like, you know, the, the Philandro Castile and, and, and Alton Sterling. And frankly, I'd even put the Eric Garner case somewhere in the middle here. And these cases, the three I just mentioned, are totally, they're totally unlike the extremes, but they're importantly different from one another too. Because, I mean, one important thing to point out is that in some of these videos, the video record itself can be profoundly misleading because some start after the shooting occurred. You, know, you, you, don't simply, you simply don't know what precipitated it. And some that show the shooting don't show you what the cops themselves saw. And so you can't, you can't really judge whether it was rational for them to feel that their lives were in danger. So the range of these cases, ethically and as a matter of police procedure, is almost as wide as can be imagined. And then you throw Trayvon Martin in there, yeah. where the guy who shot him wasn't even a cop, and and it wasn't even arguably wasn't even white, right? And yet all these cases are spoken about in the same breath as intolerable examples of murderous racism on on the part of the police. So my problem, and again, it, I, this doesn't subsume everything Black Lives Matter is doing, but my problem with I mean, this is the, kind of the, the, the moral core of the movement, as far as I can tell. And these claims are not only inaccurate and unfair, I, they, they, they seem, frankly, dangerous to me. Okay. Uh, that's a lot. Uh, yeah. Time is limited. Maybe we'll run over five minutes or so. But sure. I think I need to respond. Uh, first, uh, Black Lives Matter is not one thing. You know, it's it's a aggregation of... Uh, you know, a fairly large number of loosely connected um, initiatives and and uh, movements that are ongoing, and so it's it's going to be a little ragged around the edges. And uh, you said you're sure that there, or you're you're prepared to believe that there's some decent, upstanding, sensible people who are involved. And I I don't know the movement as well as I might, but from what I know, that's certainly true. There are some decent, upstanding sensible, rational people um, who are involved. The second thing I would say is that um, I perhaps should make a confession. In the January 2015 Boston Review, uh, that's a publication, a literary and political magazine published out of Boston, Mm. called the Boston Review, I have a piece on the Ferguson matter, uh, Michael Brown and uh, Darren uh, Wilson, the police officer, um, in which I say Michael Brown is no Rosa Parks, um, and he's no Emmett Till either. What I meant by that is no Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks was the woman who refused to give up her seat on a bus in um, Alabama uh, and started, in effect, the, the civil rights movement with the subsequent protest in Montgomery, Alabama, and the bus boycott and so on about segregation and is thought of in some circles as the mother of the civil rights movement. Uh, Michael Brown is no Rosa Parks, and I only meant to say, please don't use this case as the template on which to try to build a national movement for racial justice. Uh, And the reason I was saying that in that piece, that's January of 2015. The reason I was saying it was precisely because I thought, um, you know, uh, Brown was culpable And what happened is, best we know, two separate investigations coming to the same conclusion, the local um, authorities and the federal government both looked at that and concluded that the officer had acted reasonably under the uh, threat implied by that circumstance. So please don't don't make a movement out of this. And no Emmett Till either. Emmett Till was the victim of a lynching in the 1950s in the South. 
and he became a, a celebrated case of uh, racist violence against black people because his uh, body was displayed for public viewing in a casket, even though it was partly decomposed because he had been uh, murdered and then uh, buried. Uh, it was a it was a horrible thing to behold. Mm. Uh, so he's a celebrated case, and I'm saying, uh, you know, uh, Michael Brown, uh, as you described it, uh, as best we understand the facts, uh, tried to, you know, he assaulted a police officer, tried to take his weapon and place the police officer in fear of his life. Yeah, I got, uh, you know, tremendous negative, uh, you know, reaction. Uh, to that article. And I, I described that in order to try to put my finger on a phenomenon. You say irrationality. Um, you say these cases are different. Of course they're different. Um, you say that uh, it's dangerous and disconcerting that people would aggregate such cases into a generic indictment and then mount uh, a, a movement on the basis of it. Um, I agree with that. Uh, on the other hand, it would appear to me that if we were to step back as social analysts, uh, and just try to understand the dynamics of the phenomenon, we recognize that, you know, there's a kind of logic. I mean, the movement, a movement, will have its own momentum, uh, that the um, appropriation of these varied cases and the eliding of important differences between them and the su suppression of specific factual information, like uh, the guy, uh, George Zimmerman, who shot, Trayvon Martin in um, Florida was not white. Uh, he was of Latino uh, uh, background. Uh, and, uh, you know, he was acquitted by a jury of his peers after they concluded that he had acted in um, defense of his life. Uh, people will say, well, he should never have been following Trayvon Martin in the first place. I'm not prepared, perhaps, to credit that. But uh, that doesn't change the fact that in, the, in that encounter, a jury that looked carefully at the fact, these facts or these, uh, these inconvenient details about these various cases will, will be suppressed uh, in the interest of affirming a narrative. Uh, the case fits the narrative, uh, not the facts. The, the, the narrative has a momentum and a kind of integrity, I use the word in inverted commas, of its own. Uh, people are looking for evidence of uh, racist, uh, they don't trust uh, the proceedings of uh, duly authorized, uh, you know, tribunals and so forth that attempt to assess the facts. Uh, we all know, don't we, that the police lie. Why should I believe the outcome of any particular grand jury? They don't invite the guy who applied the chokehold in the Eric Garner case. No one's going to talk about, well, why is the man resisting arrest in the first place? If he had merely complied, the encounter would have ended uh, in a mundane manner. Um, no one is going to... Uh, uh, bothered with the idea that, well, the cop was attempting to control in a situation, perhaps he shouldn't have been using the chokehold, but certainly he didn't attempt to intend to kill anybody. The narrative has such a power of its own that mm. these these features are, are, are going to be suppressed. And indeed, anybody who raises them, even a black person like myself, will be suspect. I mean, don't you know that by dwelling on that kind of detail, you're actually undercutting our effort to get justice for our people? One thing I see in these police videos in general, and this is just, this is, and I've seen a lot of these videos and it's, you know, for black arrests, white arrests, and I've trained with police officers. So I, I kind of see this from the other side and the overwhelming fact that comes through in these encounters is that people 
don't understand how to behave around cops so as to keep themselves safe. You mentioned resisting arrest. I mean, people have to stop resisting arrest and they have to understand how the force continuum looks from from a cop's eye view. And and so this is uh, it's a bit of a public service announcement, but I feel like if you take nothing else from this end of the podcast, this is something you can take which will actually keep you safer. And I think this is something that Black Lives Matter should be teaching explicitly. When you put your hands on a cop, when you're wrestling a cop or grabbing him or pushing him or striking him, you are very likely to get shot, whatever the color of your skin, because when you're with a cop, there's a gun out in the open, right? And any physical struggle has to be perceived by him as a fight for the gun. And again, a cop doesn't know what you're going to do if you physically overpower him, and he has to assume the worst. And most cops are not so confident in their ability to physically control a person without shooting him, and for good reason, because they're actually not so well trained at that. And they're continually confronting people who are bigger than them or younger and more athletic or more aggressive. And they do not have the, they're not superheroes. These are people, just ordinary people with surprisingly little training. And once things turn physical, they really, they they can't afford, I mean, so, and this is again, something that people are totally confused about. They think that if they see a video of somebody, you know, trying to punch a cop in the face and the, the the person's unarmed, well, then the cop should just be punching back, right? You know, and, and any use of deadly force is unwarranted. But that is just insanity. It's, it's not the cop's job to be the best bare-knuckle boxer on earth, right? He can't afford to get hit in the head and risk getting knocked out because, there, again, there's a gun on the table. And this is the cop's perception of the world, and it is, it is a justifiable one given the, the dynamics of human violence. And this is, a, this is a part in your podcast with, with Rajiv Sethi where I felt like you guys were talking past one another a little bit on this point. And I, I recommend people see that podcast because it was, it was very valuable and on many points. But on this point, so he was totally correct to insist that you should be able to be rude to a cop in our society without being physically punished for it, right? Much less killed. And I think he's totally right to think that it's a measure of a civilized society that cops don't start beating you just because you've been disrespectful. Sure. But you were right to insist that people shouldn't be rude to cops because it's totally unwise. And in defense of what you were saying, you're totally right. You, you want to be respectful to a cop because you don't want things to escalate. And again, Rajiv is right in saying that they shouldn't escalate based on anything you might say. And if they do escalate, it's the fault of the cop. And on Rajiv's side, he's right to think that the cop's job is to have a very thick skin and be totally professional in his dealings with the public. But on your side, I mean, do you, do you really want to increase the risk to your own life by testing the emotional maturity of the guy with the gun? No, you, you don't want to do that. And, and, and I, in my view, you have to deal with a cop like he's a lethal robot who could malfunction at any time. And what I see in these videos is people who just have no idea what the implications of grabbing a cop, pushing a cop, res- doing whatever they're doing to resist arrest. And j- just think about this. It's never up to you whether or not you should be arrested. I mean, how could it be? How could it ever be? Does it matter that you know that you didn't do anything wrong? How could that fact be effectively communicated by your not following police commands? Unless you called the cop yourself, 
you actually never know what situation you're in with a cop. You don't know, if I'm walking down the street, I don't know that a cop didn't just get a call that some guy who looks like Ben Stiller committed an armed robbery. And he comes up to me, I know I didn't do anything, I don't know, but I don't know what's in the cop's head. So, so how am I the best judge of whether or not I need to be arrested? So the, so the, the time to find out what's going on Again, this is, I'm sorry for the public service announcement, but this is, I think, really important for people to understand. The time to find out what's going on, the time to complain about racist cops, the time to punish them, the time to go ballistic is after cooperating at the police station with your lawyer, right? That's the time to rectify all the problems in the system and all the bad, and and to punish all the bad cops, which are surely out there. But to not comply in the heat of the moment where the guy with the gun is issuing commands, that is raising your risk astronomically. And it's, it's something that, that people intuitively, it seems, just do not understand. Um, that was a long statement, Sam, and I think it was worth every uh, minute of it. Um, I couldn't agree more with what you've said, and I won't try to repeat what you've said. Uh, with respect to my uh, colloquy with my friend Rajiv Sethi, you're right, I do think we were talking past one another. Um, not only was I making your point, which is that it's unwise not to comply with the police officers when you're in a, a situation in which he's te- uh, arresting you or may arrest you or detaining you or whatever it might be. He may be doing so unfairly, but you should not attempt to resolve that dispute by resisting um, uh, his uh, you know, prosecution of that situation. You should do it in another context. I, I certainly agree with that as a matter of prudence. But I was also making the point that as a citizen, one has an obligation to avoid that conflict with the police officer, uh, notwithstanding the fact that the police officer may have made a mistake, uh, that civility in your interaction with the uh, duly constituted institutions of authority in the society that are there on your behalf. Um, is a, a duty of citizenship. I was making that claim. You may not agree with that, but in any mm. case, I was making that claim. That's leading me to what I really want to say, which is that for people for whom the institutions of policing authority have lost legitimacy in their minds, they're not going to be compelled by the observation that one has a duty to uh, comply. They may be persuaded by the observation that it's unwise not to comply, but there will still be resentment uh, in the circumstance in which, and and maybe an intense resentment. Um, I'm thinking of some of these cases uh, I I mentioned during my conversation with Rajiv. Uh, Sandra Bland, the woman who was found dead in her jail cell, evidently of suicide, although that's disputed, who uh, gets into an altercation with a police officer who pulls pulls her over for a minor traffic violation. Uh, People shouldn't be pulled over just because they change lanes without signaling it. That's harassment, a person might say. Uh, She blows smoke in the police officer's face, and he tells her to put the cigarette out, and she doesn't comply. He loses his cool. Maybe he should not have lost his cool. Maybe he should have been more temperate in the circumstance. But she's provoking him. She ends up being arrested. Henry Louis Gates, Jr., Another celebrated case. Uh, This is the Harvard professor arrested on his doorstep for breaking into his own house because he gets into an altercation with a police officer who's been called to the scene suspecting that a burglary might be in progress and asks him to produce ID. 
He doesn't respond to the police officer politely. Instead, he berates the police officer for signaling him out for attention because he's black. He ends up in handcuffs and being taken to the police station. Uh, the president of the United States even has to weigh in in the case. But these are cases where I would say um, uh, that the background contempt for the institutions of authority associated with simply being black in America and thinking of police as not necessarily being friendly to you, thinking that they're profiling you, thinking that they've singled you out for attention, leads to a kind of uh, contempt or disrespect or refusal to honor uh, the, the uh, law enforcement officer uh, in the circumstance. And, and that can, of course, backfire on people. Uh, Rajiv's response to me, you know, was to say, uh, that was to suggest that I wanted black people to be passive and servile mm. in interactions with police officers. And he was saying, why should a person have to lower themselves to the position of being passive and servile uh, simply because this person is wearing a uniform? Of course, I didn't uh, counsel passivity. I counseled civility. But the perception that even an act of civility is a kind of passivity is more likely to arise in the mind of somebody who resents the very fact of the presence of the police officer in the first place and thinks that generically the police, the cops, have it in for, for their kind. So you're asking me to be civil? In a way, I want to show my contempt as a reaction to what I believe to be the contempt that the officer has toward me. Uh, that's not a justification, but it may be at least in part an explanation for why so many people don't follow your very sage advice. Yeah. Well, listen, Glenn, I'm now mindful of just how yeah. generous you've been with your time because I've stolen at least 15 minutes more than we had budgeted. And I just, I just want to say it's been really a great pleasure and privilege to have you on the podcast. And I hope it's just the first of many conversations we have by Skype or in person. And to, just to close, please tell people where they can find more of your work online, your, your Twitter handle and your website in particular. Uh, okay, my website is the Economics Department at Brown. Why don't I send you this information in email and then you can, I actually don't even know my Twitter handle. God, forgive me, please. Forgive me. I will put it on my, on my blog. This, this will be wh wherever this podcast is embedded on my website, you'll find how you can find out more about Glenn online. And in my signature for my email to you, Sam, you'll find a, a URL for my, uh, for my website. Great, great. Listen, Glenn, thanks again. This has really been great. Take care, Sam. I really enjoyed talking to you. We have to find a happier subject next time. Yeah, we'll, we'll do. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast, or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You'll also get access to advanced tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.